Chapter 20 Transmogrants Assad's report to Misha over the following months were regular, if not fully detailed. A few words on progress to date, a revised schedule of deadlines, a list of new supplies needed, sand for a particular type of glass, metal for a particular type of forge, fabric for a particular weave, and slaves, always more slaves. The last were plentiful, but the remaining resources were beginning to wear thin. Most of Yodi had been plundered, and entire villages were now being impressed to work the mines that had not been stripped clean. The caravans from Tomoko and Zigan were less frequent than they should have been, and the quality of their tribute had fallen off. A number of representatives of those cities were dispatched to Ashan as an example to the others. The Corlysians, still behind a gauzy mask of neutrality, were increasingly troublesome. Misha was convinced that caravans were havens for Argivan spies who reported everything back to his hated brother. Misha found that Ashan's experiments served to increase loyalty and discipline among his own troops. It was soon reported that thieves and deserters were sent to Ashan's camp and never returned. Finally, after many months, Ashan appeared before Misha with a working prototype. It listed heavily to the left. It drooled. It shuffled on two feet. It had oversized pins through its wrists, ankles, elbows, and knees, and metal plates strengthening its neck. It was hairless. It lacked teeth, and it had dark smudges where there once had been eyes. Its skin resembled bluish, cracked plaster, and it looked as if it had been cooked in wax. It could not speak, but made soft, mewling noises. It stank. When Ashan gave it the command, it disarmed and almost killed three of Misha's elite guard, and ignored the pain as a fourth guard finally pinned it to the floor with its spear. It tried to fight its way up the impaling pole to claw at its attacker, before its organs failed, and it died at last. Misha was pleased, and gave Ashan permission and resources to build an army of her transmogrants. Of these things were once living beings, but now were little more than organic automatons controlled by Ashan's word. If Ashan noticed the fearful and disgusted faces of the Falaji as her prototype was hauled from the room feet first, she said nothing. Nor did she notice the dark-robed northern priests among the assemblage who whispered to each other in excited tones. Despite the relative success of the first prototype, it took nearly a year for Ashan to refine the process and guarantee a success rate of more than 50%. She spent another year organizing the transmogrified beings into something more than a shambling horde. The red-haired woman's methods were simple and ruthless. She bleached out the minds and wills of her captives as she picked their skins, making them tough, resilient, and mostly mindless. The rudiments of intelligence remained, enough to follow simple orders, but any trace of personality was gone. It was good that the process worked the body as well as the soul, Ashan reflected. It would do little good for a Falaji warrior to recognize a criminal cousin among her ranks. Finally, the unit was ready for Misha's use. The timing was excellent. The Corlysians were traitors, the new Kadir had decided, and needed to be made into an example before they grew more powerful. Argyle was protecting the northern passes, but if the Kadir's armies broke through it in the south, near Corlinda itself, the Falaji would have a foothold on the far side of the mountain chain. Misha sent Ashan a message to her warriors for battle. The artificer replied that she wished to lead the attack herself. In the workshop, the other captains complained to the Kadir. How could a woman lead? They asked. What real man would follow a woman? Particularly, a woman with ill-omened hair. Misha thought about the complaints and sent another query to Ashan, detailing his desires for her to contribute to the attack, though he made no mention of leading it. Ashan took note of the exclusion and returned a second letter, the heart of which was that unless she controlled the entire army, she could not guarantee the performance of her forces. There was a lull in communications until Misha issued a formal declaration making Ashad a brevet general for the duration of the campaign into Corlys 
and commanded the other war captains to defer to her. Misha himself decamped from his workshop for the Sawardi marches, where the army was gathering to review the troops and confer with the war captains one last time. Several, including old Jaren of the Gestos clan, expressed one last time their concern about Ashant's leadership. She is a woman, Jaren repeated his final meeting with the Kadir. Ashant was not present, for she was raiding the transmogrants for the long march. An uncaring woman at that, the old man added. She is my assistant, said Misha. I trust her in all things. Do you trust your war captains less, most wise of the wise? asked Jaren. I trust all to do their duty toward the Falaji people, replied Misha. She is not Falaji, shouted Jaren, and several of the other war captains whispered to each other heatedly. She traffics in the unspeakable. Her abominations frighten the horses and disturb the men. She uses outlander wizardry. Misha's face clouded, and he snapped. I am not Falaji either, humble servant. Do you want to do without my outlander wizardry as well? Jaren's voice stuttered, then finally fell silent. A long, tense moment passed, but no other voice came to Jaren's defense. Even Hajar was a stone-faced enigma at his master's side. At last, the war captain of the Gestos clan knelt before his Kadir and said, I appreciate the opportunity to voice my concerns, most mighty one, and understand the wisdom of your most poisoned decisions. The talk moved to other matters but Jaren did not raise his voice again. The other war captains, though they agreed with the old man, did not broach the subject. In the morning, there was a grand review. Misha and his aides, including Hajar, gathered beneath their pavilion as the troops passed in review. There were Falaji in the crowds, and Yodians as well, nervous and uncertain among the desert dwellers. The troops were dressed in their best finery, armor, and robes that would be packed away in the baggage train and only removed again when and if they reached Coralus's capital. Three units of cavalry trotted past, bedecked in flowing red robes that flickered like flames. Despite his earlier outburst, Jaren was allowed to retain control of the Gestos cavalry, and he rode, expressionless, at the head of his unit. The sun shone up the wide brass helmets of the foot soldiers, moving in precision review past their Kadir. Then came the skirmishers, young and a bit less organized, most of them younger sons, just entering the military. Then the scouts rode past on their nimble horses, cantering in ornate patterns back and forth before the pavilion. And with each, the Falaji cheered, and even the Yodians present remarked on the grandeur of the warriors and their relief that the troops were heading somewhere other than Yodia. Ashan arrived with her horde of transmogrants. There were nearly 300 of the creatures lined up in orderly rows. They moved not with the precision of trained troops, but rather with an eerie lockstep, for they were controlled by the same mind. Not a trace of individuality showed itself among them, as if they had been cast from the same mold, they looked as if they would topple over as they shambled forward, but they marched as a single unit. The beasts were clad only in rough tabards of brownish yodian cloth, and those garments looked like an afterthought. Ashan rode at their head, astride a great black charger. Her cape matched her scarlet hair, and she wore an ornate set of black and red armor, custom-made, it was said, in Zegon. The armor bristled with spikes and was polished to snare the sun and blind the onlookers. The cheers died as she passed before the stand, and the applause was sporadic at best. Misha's aide sat immobile as rocks next to the Kadir and did not respond. The Kadir raised his hand in benediction to Ashan, and she returned the salute. Neither paid attention to the lack of enthusiasm among the others. Last came the dragon engines, four new ones, operated by crews working within their bellies, pumping the bells and keeping the steam pressure high to drive them forward. There were renewed shouts of encouragement as they towered over the populace, 
only two of the engines would be sent east with Ashot. The other two would be sent south along the Kerr ridges to be spotted by the Corlysians, drawing troops away from the main Falaji attack. The crowd spirits rose with the passing of the dragon engines, and after the review, the Gadir treated the populace to a feast. At the banquet, Ashan sat at Mishra's right hand, and there was no doubt about the trust he placed in his general. Jaren was seated at the far end of the platform, but many of the other Falaji, including Hajar, stopped to offer words of encouragement to the old Gestos. With the coming of the morning, the army was gone, east into the mountains, into Corlys beyond. The path they trod was similar to that Ashad and Misha had used to reach Corlinda many years ago. The journey was less smooth than hoped. In the first place, the new dragon engines were not as nimble as the originals. They moved slowly and required a great deal of space in which to turn. In addition, they were noisy, venting steam and clattering like old sacks of nails. This bothered the cavalry troops and made Ashad realize that any element of surprise would be lost. Then there were the transmogrants themselves, slower than the other troops, slower than the dragon engines themselves, yet they were tireless. Each day, the regular foot soldiers and cavalry outdistanced the shambling demi-living creatures, and each day, around the midnight bell, the living automatons lurched into camp. Ashan remained with them and spoke little to the other war captains during the journey. At the end of the tenth slow day in the mountains, the advance scouts spotted an ornithopter. It sighted them as well and retreated back down the pass flapping its oversized wings in panic. That evening, after midnight, the generals held council. It would take two days to free themselves from the mountains entirely and to reach the relatively open land to the upper core valley. The Corlysians, probably with Argivian support, would be waiting for Mishra's forces before they could extricate themselves fully from the highlands. A tight battle would be disastrous for the normally mobile Falaji cavalry. A loss and a lock, said Darn, turning his palms upward. We seem to be undone, for the merchant nation's mercenaries will be running for the pass, seeking to hold it against us, and we cannot turn back in good faith without so much as a single drop of blood being spilt. To press on is folly, and to turn back smacks of dishonor. There must be another way, muttered Ashan, almost to herself. I have no doubt you will find it. It was for exactly this reason that our Kadir, mighty may he be in his wisdom, chose you to lead us. Ashan looked into John's face for the slightest hint of insincerity, but there seemed to be none. She thought for a moment, then said, We must get out of the passes before the Corlysian troops arrive. Aye, but we are too slow, complained Jaren. Would that our engines had wings, so that we might arrive there sooner, but they do not. Ashan pressed her fingertips together and said, Then we leave the dragon engines behind. Faces fell around the table, and the arguments began. The engines themselves were useful tools, said one war captain, invaluable in battle. They were mobile forts, said another, a solid center about which men could cluster for defense. A third officer noted, they provide protection for the army from the ornithopters, whose pilots had learned the dangers of straying too close. A smile flitted across Jaren's face, but he said nothing. The engines are too slow, said Ashan finally. We have the transmogrants to provide a solid center to the line. Your abominations are slow as well, noted Jaren. Then they will leave now, stated Ashan. They will be waiting for you at the entrance of the pass. She turned to Jaren. Unless you have a better plan, she asked silkily. No one did. The meeting was over, and Ashan was gone again, leading her shambling creations ahead of the army and leaving the Makfawa to catch up as best they could. The army reached the Vale of the Upper Corps before the Corlysians could respond fully. Still, 
word reached Ashton of a large force of Corlysian troops coming up the valley. Scouts had spotted ornithopters in the skies above the Corlysian troop column, proof, if there were still any doubt, of that nation's complicity with Urza's Argivians. The Corlysians would be within striking range the next morning. That was more than enough time for Ashnot to lay a trap. The plan was simple. The foot troops were drawn up in the center of the plain, flanked on one side by all three cavalry units. The transmogrants stood in the center of the line, serving as an anchor, hidden behind a thin line of foot soldiers. The skirmishers would engage the enemy band, drawn into the attack line. The transmogrants would be revealed, and on Ashnot's signal, the cavalry would sweep in along the flank, destroying the Corlysians utterly between the swift-moving horses and the unyielding transmogrants. Jarwin was politely unimpressed. Falaji were made for quick strikes, he observed, not for running down entire units of the enemy. New uses for old tools, said Ashot, who was thoroughly tired of the old Gestos war chief. And if the Corlysians do not take your offered bait, asked Jarwin, if they encamp and wait for reinforcements? Then the dragons catch up, and we fight a more traditional battle, snapped Ashot. Tell me, Captain. Why do you question Misha's orders so often and so heartily? The older war captain stiffened, then replied through clenched teeth. I have my orders, which are to follow you. We will deploy along the flank and await your signal. In the morning, the Corlysians arrived, a force equal in number to the Falaji forces. Two ornithopters were present, though one darted east at the first sight of the Falaji troops. Reporting back to Urza and Tanos, thought Ashan, surely neither artificer would be present here. There was no sign of war machines among the troops, nor did she see additional ornithopters. The skirmishers engaged the leading edge of the Corlysian troops, firing slings and light bows. Several units of the Corlysians charged forward, but were mastered by their captains and brought back, and the enemy formed into regular units. The Corlysians made extensive use of mercenaries, Ashnod recalled, so they would be better disciplined than most of the Yodian rabble. Then again, there were likely Yodian sellswords among the Corlysians, and that might cause them to charge prematurely. The enemy force as a body heaved forward slowly, its center held through tight discipline, but the units along its flanks were already ahead of the main van. They were in perfect position to be cut off and defeated. Ashnot smiled as the enemy neared. The transmogrants were in place behind a thin line of swordsmen. To her right, the cavalry rode into view, waiting only for her signal to charge. The two armies collided like prehistoric beasts, and men began to die. Brass hats with spears kept a number of mercenaries at bay, while swordsmen engaged in a deadly close combat. Ashnot shouted an order, and the swordsmen at the center of the line parted. She gave another cry, and her transmogrants raised their weapons and began to lumber forward. Something happened on the opposing side. The center of the main van, where the commander normally would have his own elite guard, parted to reveal a new set of creatures. There were two types among the Corlysians, humans in beetle-like armor, and hulking brutes looking like soft mishappened ogres. Ashnot suddenly realized that the beetle-like armor was the outer covering of humanoid devices and the soft flesh of the ogres was some type of mud. Automatons, she thought, like Urza's Avengers. The Corlysians had prepared their own surprise at the center of their line. Ashnot cursed as the two centers collided. The transmogrants would have broken a line of normal humans, but these were no ordinary warriors. The beetlemen worked with clockwork precision, raising and lowering their razor-tipped blades like farmers threshing their wheat. Alongside them, the huge earthen statues waded into the transmogrants, crushing soft skulls with their great hands. The transmogrants would neither retreat nor recruit. Ashan had not given them the capacity to understand such orders. However, it was clear to the red-haired general that they were overmatched, a fact equally clear to the other Falaji footmen and skirmishers. Already, they were losing ground, 
only a few steps away from a full retreat. Ashdod's position was a bubble, extending into the Corlysian lines, surrounded on three sides by mercenaries and automatons. Ashdod gave the order, and heralds gave the signal for the cavalry. A sudden assault on the flank would still break the Corlysian army and allow her own troops to recover, she told herself. The signalman unfurled a great crimson banner and waved it to the cavalry. The cavalry did not move. Ashdod stared in disbelief, but her eyes had not deceived her. The cavalry had not abandoned its position. A unit of mercenary archers from Corlys had taken a position opposite it, but the three units of cavalry did not charge. Ashdod cursed again and shouted at the signalman. He waved his banner again frantically. Still, the cavalry did not move. Ashdod looked around. The left flank, farthest from the cavalry, was already crumbling. The Falaji footmen, abandoning their spears, and in some cases their helmets, and falling back. Ahead of her, the blades of the beetlemen were ripping the transmogrants to shreds. As she watched, an earthen statue picked up a transmogrant, lifted the creature over its head, and pulled it apart by the legs and arms. The rotted remains cascaded down on the statue, but the clay automaton suffered no damage. Indeed, the cuts inflicted on the statue seemed to heal as Ashnod watched. The transmogrants had better success against the beetle warriors, and along the ground lay scattered remains of both dead human flesh and dismantled mechanisms. Ashnod looked to her right at the cavalry. Now it was finally moving. Then she cursed. It was moving backward, an orderly retreat in the face of mere archers. It was pulling away. The sight of the cavalry's retreat destroyed the remaining right flank. The troops wavered and then broke into a run. Both flanks were in full route, and the only thing holding the center was the remains of Ashnod's unit of transmogrants. Ashnod wheeled her own horse. A pain looked on her face. To abandon her creations felt to her as if the very heart was ripped from her flesh. Nonetheless, they would be destroyed. There was no one else to save them. She spurred her black charger and left the devastation behind her, hoping that the transmogrants would do enough damage to at least slow their pursuers until the Flaji were once more under the safe protection of the dragon engines. The transmogrants had done that part of the job well, for after repelling the Falaji invasion force, the Corlysian advance halted entirely. The enemy might have been more hurt than Ashan had thought, or they were waiting for resupply. Possibly, the mercenaries had clauses in their contracts, excusing them from pursuing enemies into the mountains. Perhaps their own commanders were afraid of ambush, thought Ashnod. Regardless, there was no pursuit, save for the lone ornithopter that trailed them west for a day until they reached the dragon engines. Their surprise shattered. Their transmogrants slain or lost to the last beam. The troops gathered around the engines, reversed their course, and began the slow crawl back to Falaji territory. Half a month later, Ashnod stood in Misha's workshop before his dark oak throne. She was sputtering in rage. Treason! She shouted. I gave a direct order, and Jarn here ignored it. Because of that, we were routed. Most reverend one, said Jarn calmly. We did not see the signal flag for the assault. We had been told by our most revered war general not to attack until we saw the flag. When we saw the battle was going against our forces, we pulled back to provide a screen to protect our retreating forces. More would have perished if we had not done so. We were defeated because you ignored the signal flag, shouted Ashnod. I did not see the signal flag, said Jarn, his face impassive. Nor did the other war captains. Misha patted the tips of his fingers together. Do you say that my trusted assistant is lying? No, most wise among us, said Jarn quickly. Only that we did not see it. Such are the fortunes of war. A daring plan often comes to naught because of a simple thing. He looked at Ashan and added, Or because of a simple mistake in judgment. Ashan looked daggers at the Gesto's chief, 
but said nothing. Jaren added, We did retreat in good order. Most of the cavalry was unharmed, and the dragon engines were undamaged. There were, however, heavy losses among the footmen, and the brevet general's own special forces were lost. What a surprise, muttered Ashan. Misha ignored the comment and dismissed the war captain. Can you believe his lies? The red-haired woman shouted as the door was still closing behind Jaren. Misha's face was tense and concerned. I had hoped your endeavor would prove successful. Success ennobles many experiment. If you had pressed into Corliss, if your creations had secured us a beachhead, then the war chiefs would be lining up to tell me how they knew you could do it all along. Needless to say, they're not doing so. It's all lies, replied Ashot. They're afraid of me, of us, of what we can do, of our creations. The battlefield does not belong to human warriors. The dragon engines prove that. The transmogrants prove that. The battlefield is still theirs, said Misha. His voice held no expression. Their swords succeeded where your mindless creations did not. But you leave me with another problem. Some of the chieftains think that I listened to you too much in this matter. That I showed weakness by depending on you. Weakness? shouted Ashot. Let them try to run an army in the field. I will, said Misha. Because I am sending you to Serenth. There was a long pause. Serenth is on the other side of the empire, said Ashot alas. Hard on the shores of Lake Ronum, agreed Misha. A nation rich in metals and wood. Material that we need here. I want you to secure the fealty of their leaders. You want me out of the way, accused Ashnod. Misha held his hands open. You're the most trusted of my lieutenants. I fear for your safety among the other chiefs. You should fear for their safety instead, spat Ashnod. I do, said Misha, which is another reason to send you to Serenth. Take a small force of men you trust with you. Gain their fealty. And if Serenth doesn't want to swear fealty to us, inquired Ashad bitterly. Then I will send a larger force, said Misha, under a real commander. Ashad bristled, but said nothing. Misha's eyebrows arched, and a kindly look passed over his face. It was an expression Ashad had not seen in a long time. My student, he said, you do many things better than any man, better than any individual in my empire. But you are part of that empire, and you must go as your Kadir commands. Ashad bowed formally. I respect your wishes, most wise one among us, she said woodenly. Let me make preparations for departure. Misha smiled and said, One more thing. Ashnot turned at the door. Leave Jarn alive, said the Kadir. It would be difficult to explain if something horrible happened to him soon after this conversation. Ashnot's brow furrowed, but she nodded. The door closed behind her, and Misha let out a deep sigh. Then. He rose from the throne, padded over to his great slate board, and began to reconfigure the legs of his new dragon engines.